And now it's time for the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on Community Radio 2XX. What's your least favourite insect? I did ask you that before the show. And I think if you asked a random selection of people, you'd probably find that many of you would say the cockroach. And it's appeared in the news a bit lately in Canberra because we've had some local businesses affected, food outlets affected, when they had cockroaches finding their way into the tops of pizzas and even one business moved out of a local shopping centre because they couldn't get rid of all the cockroaches. So that's come up now as an Ask Fuzzy Cat question in the Canberra Times in tomorrow's newspaper. And to answer the question about our attitudes to cockroaches and a bit of their biology and lots of interesting facts about them, I've managed to uh, nab Martin Robinson, who is a naturalist at the Australian Museum in Sydney, and I've got him on the phone for you here on Fuzzy Logic. And good morning, Martin. Welcome to Fuzzy Logic. Greetings. How are you, lot? Ah, welcome. So, now the humble cockroach, mm-hmm. can you tell us uh, just a few basic facts about the cockroach? What are the ones th- that were likely to have been seen in Canberra? Well, um, Australia's got um, probably about two or 3,000 species of cockroach, um, many of which are, are still waiting to be described by science. But out of all of those species, only uh, five of them uh, are actually pests, and they're all ones that have been brought into Australia by us, so they're all introduced ones. The native ones you very rarely find inside houses, and if they do wander in by mistake, unless they can get out again, they usually starve because they eat relatively specialised food that you're not likely to find inside a house. Uh, so it's the foreigners that are causing yeah, the tr- and that's the why they've got names like uh, the German cockroach, yeah. the American cockroach, uh, the Oriental cockroach, um, and there's uh, Smoky Brown, which has recently come into to Sydney. Uh, but there's even one called the Australian cockroach, which probably didn't come from Australia. Most of them were named after the last port of call of the ship that brought them into the UK when um, uh, the scientists were going around naming all the species. So um, regardless of where it jumped onto the ship, if the last port of call was, say, Sydney, Australia and it then went to the UK with these cockroaches on it. They got named after Sydney, Australia. So um, uh, that's why uh, you've got all these funny names. Over in Germany, they call the German cockroach the Russian cockroach. <laughs> and in Russia, they call it the Prussian cockroach, and it probably came from Southeast Asia. Uh, and I bet a lot of the, the names uh, relate to people who are currently out of favour uh, in whatever country we're talking about. Quite likely. Yeah. So it must be quite hard to actually track them down to whatever country it is they actually come from. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the easiest way is to, to look for uh, related species, species that are in the same genus or that are very, very similar to them, uh, and or um, to find out, usually in the country uh, that they came from, you'll find them away from the cities as well as inside the cities as well. Uh, most introduced animals, if they've been introduced to a country, they tend to just stick around suburbia because the conditions around there are suitable for them, whereas out in the natural bushland it's not. But if you can find them in the natural bushland as well, then chances are it, it uh, could be native to that area. Oh, well, it's, it's funny that uh, if the Australian cockroaches... Uh, well, what do they eat? Why, why don't they like coming inside our houses very much? The Australian native cockroaches? yeah. Um, well, the, uh, Australia actually has got a few world records. We've got the uh, the largest 
uh, cockroach in the world, um, and I think it's actually right up there in amongst the other largest insects of the world, based on a factor of its weight, it's, it's quite heavy, it'd be about the, the, more than a mouth. Uh, and they live in um, uh, out around Raventoe and in uh, north uh, western Queensland, and they feed only on dead dry gum leaves, so you don't get much more Australia than, than are that. These, these are the ones that some people keep for pets? As pets, yes, and they last for about 15 years or so. so really? They're, they're quite a, a long-lived insect. They've also got quite advanced parental care, too. Where um, they live, the, at the dry time of the year, the ground is like cement, and very, very hard to uh, to dig up. And um, most things are uh, put off a bit by uh, the size of a huge palm of your hand sized cockroach wandering around the ground and don't fancy tackling it as a meal. But the little ones, when they come out, they um, they would be just the right size. So instead, the parents uh, keep the young ones in the burrow and they go out and fetch leaves and take them back down to feed the young ones until the next rainy season when the ground is soft and the little ones, can, uh, which are now a bit bigger, can go out and dig their own burrows. But that's just... I've, um, should hasten to add that's just one species you've got other ones that feed only on fungus you've got other species that'll feed on pollen uh, you've got uh, others that'll feed on uh, animal dung and um, uh, of those you get a number of species that live in caves and they'll feed on things like bat dung and the uh, dead dried husks of insects and bats that um, wander into the cave and die there um, and you've got uh, other ones that'll feed on a, a variety of, of those sorts of things, but none of the household foods. So uh, as a result, they, uh, those ones are, tend to be rare visitors inside houses rather than um, suburban pests. Yeah, isn't it interesting how we put human values on something like a cockroach or an insect, you know, when you say that they nurture their young and all that kind of stuff, mm. and that they might have a community, we can't help translating our own little picture of the world on these little insects. Well, there's, um, when you consider the uh, the community uh, side of it, uh, cockroaches are an extremely ancient um, group of insects. There are fossils of um, uh, cockroach animal uh, type animals which are uh, well and truly recognisable as such uh, from way, way before the time of the dinosaurs. So they've been here since before the uh, vertebrate animals were walking around on on Earth, and they're still with us today. They came up with a very good body plan. But because of that ancient lineage, they've um, uh, probably given rise to a few uh, other uh, related insect groups. And one of these is termites, which are highly social. And um, both cockroaches and termites, uh, one of the, the key factors is they both share protozoa in their gut that help them to digest their food. And um, rather in the way that uh, cows also have the, uh, the, the various um, uh, protozoa and bacteria in their gut to help them uh, split the cellulose in their grassy diet. So um, these, that's one of the, the features that suggests their common ancestry. So it's more than likely that the termites are highly uh, evolved types of cockroaches. Yeah, so in other words, uh, evolution, nature, has come up with a successful way of building an insect and uh, it's stuck around and will probably stick around. Do you think this is a bit of a common theme that some people say, when humans wipe ourselves out with nuclear weapons or whatever, that the cockroaches will still be here? Do you think that's true? Um, 
There's certainly a very good chance of it, uh, but the thing with it is that cockroaches are better uh, able to withstand radiation than we are, but compared to other insects, less so. Uh, That's in the case of the the household cockroaches. Uh, So we tend to um, uh, assume that they'll they'll do better than us, but uh, maybe only a bit better. But then, um, as I was saying, Australia's got a number of native species and some of them are quite unusual in that they run around uh, in the daytime in the, the middle of the blazing sun right out in central Australia and those ones would cop a lot higher dosage of radiation and they'd probably do a lot better so yes it is quite uh, possible that um, cockroaches will inherit the earth but then I think um, the ants would probably do a little bit better in the radiation stakes than uh, the cockroaches would so they'll have to share it. One advantage uh, these insects have over we humans is we need oil wells and iron ore mines and ambulance services and schools and hospitals and when all that breaks down uh, we don't do so well. All these insects need is a place to go eat and sleep and stay away from the predators. Mm -hmm. And Uh, in the case of the um, the household cockroaches um, uh, there have been cases where they've been walled up inside um, uh, fibro house walls, uh, unable to get out, and the population has just ticked over in that cavity. The live ones feeding on the bodies of the dead ones uh, from previous generations and just um, recycling the humidity from their breathing to um, provide their moisture needs. And when the wall cavity's been reopened again some years later, the cockroaches have still been alive, or they've still been enough to reinfect the, the house. <laughs> so, um, yeah, they'd do quite well if they, they could um, just maintain a little population so there's enough diversity and uh, food for them. Oh, wow. They look very cross, but they're probably traumatised by the experience. How many types of cockroaches do we have in Australia? Well, that's it. It's a bit of an unknown quantity because they're still discovering new ones. Um, the, when most of the research goes towards um, cockroaches, it's usually the pest species and means of um, uh, controlling them. So as a result, the poor old native ones, which uh, cause no harm, unless there's something fairly um, spectacular, they uh, tend to get overlooked. And uh, so we, we don't really know, but it's um, almost certainly going to be in the thousands. So, um, yeah, interesting uh, sort of feature. But there's, uh, there's a couple of other um, statistics about some of the cockroaches that we've got. There are a number where they're all females. Uh, There are no males in the species, so they reproduce by virgin birth. So they only need one individual to start a population. What, immaculate conceptions? Are are they um, monotypal? Do they uh, have genetic diversity because they don't have sex? Well, yeah, it seems as though they they do, judging by what happens with a number of the other insects. They'd probably be slower to adapt uh, to changing conditions. Uh, and maybe um, there'd be, um, if a disease comes in, uh, it would probably hit most of them um, through the population fairly quickly. But um, if the conditions don't change or the diseases um, uh, don't occur, then it's an extremely good way of building up population numbers very, very rapidly um, and being able to colonise new areas. So in uh, tomorrow's Canberra Times, if our readers uh, see that if they Canberra Times uses the photo I sent, that will actually be the native cockroach, not the one that uh, has been causing havoc in our restaurants. But let's talk about another kind of uh, insect. Uh, Actually, 
is it is an insect, uh, Martin? Uh, slugs. Slugs, not an insect, no, it's a mollusk. It's a mollusk with no shell. Um, yeah. Uh, well, in, in most of the, uh, the slugs that you'll find in your garden, they do actually have traces of a shell, but it's inside. It's, it's useless to them as protection, but uh, that little oh, leathery sort of shield you get on the back is the mantle, which actually produces the shell in shelled mollusks. Mm-hmm. and um, within that there's a, a tiny remnant of the, the shell that once was. Most of the uh, slug species have actually descended from a, a shelled ancestor. Um, it's just that um, a, a slug is a more modern form, if you like. There's a lot of advantages, a lot more advantages to uh, losing the shell than there are disadvantages. Uh, the shell provides you with good protection from predators and potentially um, uh, against the, uh, the sun and drying out and things like that. But by the same contrast, it prevents you from getting to a lot of areas. It slows you up. It requires you to always be in an area where you need to get lots of calcium to make it. So um, all of those are a bit of a drawback. And you've got to spend uh, your body's energy actually constructing the stuff in the first place. Yep. But I hear, Martin, that that should be quite handy around the home in an unexpected way. Have you got any uh, stories you would like to tell us about that? Ah, well, um, many years ago, a friend of mine who used to specialise in living in really run-down dive-type places um, was telling me uh, that he was in um, uh, one of the suburbs of Sydney in a rather run-down place that had an outdoor bathroom and toilet. And um, during the summertime, it used to grow mould all the way around the walls. And um, uh, it was sort of not that prone to cleaning it up. But during the winter time, he said, um, particularly after rain, slugs used to come in and all the mould disappeared. And he reckoned that the slugs were eating the mould. So I um, got some of the same species of slugs to test it out. And sure and, and uh, true, they did eat bathroom mould. So I then um, got a little uh, terracotta, um, one of those oil burners that got the little cut-out shapes of stars and moons in it and had that resting on a saucer in the bathroom and filled it full of slugs that used to crawl out of the little star and moon holes during the the night time, feed on the the mould and then go back and uh, sleep there during the daytime. Uh, does anybody ever call you eccentric, Martin? No. <laughs> uh, but I, I kind of I like that, you know, because uh, I don't know what it is about our modern lifestyle that uh, we build these little fortresses we call our house and if an ant or an insect or something comes inside, we want to exclude it. And I was reading uh, a book uh, last night and they were talking about our war on germs mm-hmm. and on bacteria seen as the enemy even though the great majority of bacteria are harmless or, mm. in many cases, beneficial to us. Do you, mm. do you kind of see our relationship to the natural world as being a bit skew-whiff? Oh, yes. There, um, there's already uh, been noted that there's an extraordinary increase in things like asthma and food allergies and things like that over the years uh, that just were relatively unheard of um, uh, by previous generations. And one of the things that they've also noticed that in third world countries, if they go over and they worm all the kids, um, the, they, the kids usually get uh, pass out quite a lot of these um, parasitic intestinal worms. But then they start coming down with type 1 diabetes, um, 
uh, asthma, uh, food allergies, and things that they never had before. So the scientists have actually um, looked into this a bit further and find that the worms are actually suppressing, uh, to some extent, the immune system. Uh, and without this suppression, then um, the sort of autoimmune or hyperactive immune system that um, reacts over nothing or attack the, the body's own um, uh, tissue. And so as a result, they've now been able to treat some of the diseases like Crohn's disease by actually infecting the people with, I think it's uh, the pork whipworm, uh, which uh, they can be fairly sure of, of how many worms they give the person and the number won't increase. Uh, and the, um, the byproduct is that they uh, then their gut settles down, the body doesn't attack it anymore, and they live normal lives. Mm, mm. And Crohn's disease, for listeners who don't know, is actually quite a nasty uh, autoimmune condition. I think it's autoimmune of mm -hmm. the, the large intestine, and the walls of the intestine can get as thin as paper, and it's excruciating. Uh, so if you can solve that by not taking drugs... But I also uh, I wrote a, a column for the Canberra Times a while back about my chicken mm -hmm. uh, who who died uh, inverted commas on the morning, and uh, and I was musing over what the entity known as Minty was. That's our name we had for the chicken, mm -hmm. and I did a bit of research on the number of bacteria and things inside the chicken, and by some estimates, there's more non bits of non chicken in the thing we call Minty than there are of Minty herself mm. and it's actually this very complex ecology of things all working together and it kind of blurs the definition to me of what Minty was. Mm. Well there was a, a, um, a researcher in nematode worms who um, uh, once pointed out that if um, the entire world was to disappear except for nematode worms um, you would still get a sort of a silvery ghostly image of everything that was. You'd still be able to see the outlines of people and animals and trees in the nematodes because they're swarming uh, outside and, and within. So many of the, the things around us uh, that we just don't know about, uh, they, they don't affect us to any great degree, so uh, we tend to ignore them or be unaware of their existence. Mm. But they're everywhere. Mm, and, so, uh, and that's true, true of us too with things like uh, we've got our own um, gut fauna and flora which we do very poorly without so um, yeah, uh, I think there, there should be a little bit more um, live and let live in the world and it, interesting it, it influences what we value and so when we're locking up a piece of land in a, natural, in a national park or whatever we tend to do it on the basis of things that are nice and cuddly and look cute, but uh, often the things that uh, are really of value are the things we don't really notice, like the worms in the ground, the fungus in the, or the bacteria, and uh, it's not really that simple, isn't it? You can't just draw an arbitrary line on a map and say, this bit here we protect because we like the animals there. Do, do you think that's also a bit skewed? Oh, it, it certainly... I mean, as far as the um, the real rulers of the, the world are concerned, it probably won't really matter, but it, it isn't us. It's none of the vertebrates. If you take any vertebrate you can think of, that's an animal with a backbone like us, and remove it, say all the humans uh, all disappeared uh, tomorrow, and then you, you came back one year later and looked at the world, it would still be quite recognisable. There'd be animals and uh, flowers and... and 
insects wandering around and things like that. If you were to say just remove the insect group uh, from the world, within one year the the world wouldn't be a recognisable place to us. Uh, the things that depend on insects for their food, like birds, lizards, frogs, um, many of the fish, uh, bats and things like that, they would starve to death long ago, so they'd all disappear. All the plants that depend on insects for pollination, like um, uh, all the fruit trees that we grow in the um, orchards and things like that, they'd uh, cease to set fruit and uh, eventually they'd cease to produce seed. Uh, it would only be the wind-pollinated plants that would uh, still survive. And all the things that the insects used to eat themselves would still be here. So uh, things like leaf litter wouldn't break down anywhere near as rapidly. Um, dead bodies of animals wouldn't break down uh, anywhere near as rapidly. So um, the world would be a very hard place for us to live in. Mm. And I'm lucky enough to have interviewed uh, Dr Charlie Lineweaver a few times on Fuzzy, and he's an astrobiologist, and he has pointed out just how we really value intelligence very much as humans, but there's nothing in the universe that says that we are necessarily the apex of evolution. Mm. Hey, look, I might play a quick song. This is one on the theme, and it's uh, Madagascar Cockroach here on Fuzzy Logic, and our guest today is Martin Robinson from the Australian Museum, and we're talking insects, slugs, and we might even talk a bit about frogs when we come back, but also, should we be eating them? What do you reckon? I'm a Madagascar cockroach And I'm here for an exhibit at the zoo and we're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on Community Radio 2 X. Uh, my name is Rod, and guest today is Martin Robinson from the Australian Museum. Slugs, bugs, cockroaches, and even frogs. Now, Martin, there's a thing in the Canberra Times the other day, and uh, I'll just read a little bit of it to you. And it goes, um, Sparky's homemade ice cream in Missouri sold out of its only batch of cicada-filled ice cream within hours of its 1st of July debut. And employees collected cicadas in their backyards and removed most of the dead bugs' wings. They boiled the bugs and covered them with brown sugar and milk chocolate. And the base ice cream is brown sugar and butter flavour. And Jerry Worley, the environmental health chief with the Columbia Country Department of Public Health, says the agency's food code doesn't directly address the cicadas. So should we be eating more insects, do you think? Well, um, insects belong to a, um, a phylum called arthropoda, which is a jointed-legged animal, which includes uh, spiders, crabs and lobsters, insects, uh, millipedes, centipedes, and things like that. So we are actually eating already uh, some of the relatives of them in the form of crabs, lobsters, prawns, and such like. So if you eat one group, why not eat the other? The other thing is that many of us have unknowingly already eaten um, uh, the residue, if you like, of another bug, cochineal. The, the red um, food colouring is actually uh, from a, a little uh, scale insect that um, you get uh, living on, um, well, actually prickly pear, which was one of the reasons why prickly pear came to Australia. Cochineal is both a food dye and a clothing dye, and um, when the, uh, I think it was Philip, Captain Phillips' um, group came over to Australia, they uh, didn't want to pay all this um, 
uh, large sums of money for the red dye to dye the soldiers' um, coats red. So they uh, smuggled out some prickly pear pads with the cochineal on it, brought it to Australia, and the cochineal died out, but the, uh, the prickly pear is still with us. Do you, do you find it odd that, you know, we listen to the news and we hear these great swarms of locusts sweeping across the countryside eating our crops, and yet there's actually a vast amount of protein sitting in those things. Maybe we should be eating locusts. Mm, in Africa they do. When there's a locust swarm on, uh, everybody goes out in the, um, uh, the tribal areas and gathers them all up, cooks them up and eats them. Have you tried one? Uh, I've certainly tried uh, grasshoppers. None of, uh, oh, no, I actually have tried locusts some time ago. Yeah, they're quite nice. They go like uh, most of the other arthropods. They go pink when you cook them. And you just remove the, the wings and the, um, uh, the spikier uh, legs. Uh, if you grab the head uh, and bend it back and then pull, the entire gut comes away with the, uh, the head. It comes out like a, like a cord, if you like. And then you can uh, just eat the rest. <laughs> oh, listeners are smacking the lips as we, as we speak. <laughs> Mind you, uh, I don't know, cockroaches and eating locusts. Yeah. When, when or you bogong moth. Uh, yeah. When I was a student, yeah. um, quite a few of us used to eat bogong moths in the bogong moth season. Nowadays, though, it's uh, um, slightly risky in that many of them uh, contain high levels of arsenic from all the, um, the weeder sides uh, up in the areas where they, they spend their larval stage. Ah. So um, yeah, it's recommended that you don't eat more than about 10. Uh, so the Only 10 in a sitting. Right, yeah, because you do pass out the uh, arsenic, but it's not an accumulative poison, is it? I don't think. I hope not. I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure about that, but uh, uh, yeah, very good source of protein and uh, probably quite sweet, are they? Yeah, yeah they, um, the bogong moths uh, are one of the species of moths that feeds as an adult as well, so they feed on nectar along the way, and they're trying to build up the, um, uh, their fat bodies as they're flying south to get to the Alps, and they spend the, the hot, dry uh, summers um, up in the, the mountains where it's cooler and in these rock uh, cavities, and then uh, when the weather cools down again, they migrate uh, back northwards and westwards uh, to their breeding grounds and uh, lay eggs along the way, and the larvae are some of the cutworms that uh, you get in pastures and things like that. Ah, now, an interesting crossover with uh, human history here, because... I believe that the Australian Aborigines lived on the coastal areas around Eden, Bega, South Coast, New South Wales, Northern Victoria, and that there was a particular trail that would come up to the Snowy Mountains region in the months when the Bogong, a summer, I guess that would be, mm -hmm. uh, and then harvest them there. So, mm -hmm. um, and they they'd make these sort of Bogong moth cakes where they're all sort of mashed up and then cooked. Uh, and the, um, there's quite a lot of fat in, in a, a southward-bound bogong moth, um, and that would actually uh, help preserve these cakes, so they'd last for quite some time. I've, I've got to say, I really admire those little moths, because it's a long way for, what is it, around Roma or somewhere in western Queensland where they come from? It's a, it's a huge distance, considering their size. It's a fair distance for us, but then when you scale everything down to something that's... Um, what about uh, two and a half to three centimetres uh, total body length? It's a uh, it's a long way, the, the and um, unfortunately for them, um, the when they're flying by night, they navigate 
normally by the the distant light of the uh, the moon, the stars, and things like that, which is the distance is so great that by the time it reaches the Earth, it's it's uh, perpendicular to the Earth's surface. So as long as they keep the angle of that light striking their back at the same angle, they'll fly in a straight line. Then they get blown past the cities or uh, street lights or something like that. They try to do exactly the same thing with the, the street lights or the, the city lights. And they have to, because uh, the, the light is a lot stronger and a lot closer to them, and it comes out from the light source like the spokes on a bicycle wheel. So they have to keep constantly changing their uh, angle in order to get the light striking their back at the, the right spot mm. for them. So they fly in a spiral straight into the light, and as soon as the light's on, they can never leave because they keep they try to fly away and they keep navigating back to the light in that spiral. So the only thing that will work for them is if a, a big um, uh, wind comes from the, the other direction and blows them back onto course. Uh, do you think... Yeah, I've wondered about that, and I know that at Parliament House it's been a real problem for the people who maintain the building that mm. they get swamped by these bogongs in a good year or a bad year, mm. depending on how you put it. Do you think that the numbers captured by this kind of trap is significant to their population? Oh, uh, it can be. You can get um, uh, masses and masses and masses of dead moths where they just eventually exhaust all their fat supplies and uh, die um, at the base of the, the light. And the, I'm sure all the cleaners will tell you in Bogong moth season about the, the bucketfuls of them they're having to uh, sweep up and throw out each day. But whether that affects the overall population or not, I don't know. There are still good numbers of bogong moths around, um, but the uh, the pesticide link um, is a bit more of a, a worry because they're so that they're carrying higher levels. Because there's a number of animals that feed on them when they're in their winter um, uh, hibernation, no, not winter. Uh, sorry, summer hibernation clefts in the uh, the Alps, uh, and one of them is the endangered uh, mountain pygmy possum. Mm. Uh, and if that um, uh, gets arsenic poisoning from eating bogong moth, uh, which it has to rely on, uh, that's going to be just an added pressure that um, uh, these things don't need. Yeah, it's an interesting way in which uh, everything is connected. Um, and I know that quite people are researching uh, the pygmy possum because they are critically endangered, I believe. Do you know if they've found traces of arsenic in them? Uh, I know they've uh, found traces of arsenic in the bodies of the moths um, because a number of the moths die in these cliffs and um, then the rains that come in wash them out and wash them down the, the slopes into the vegetation. They found that the vegetation uh, around the um, edge areas where all the, the moth bodies are washing up has um, had traces of arsenic and uh, some of it seems to be dying and things like that. So um, as to whether they've uh, actually taken tissue samples from the possums and checked them for arsenic, I don't know. Yeah. Um, let's talk about another kind of biological control, one which we thought was a brilliant idea at the time, uh, and that's the cane toad. And, uh, of course, it's an animal we love to hate in Australia. Actually, I have a key ring for my car that's made of a little cane toad carcass. Mm -hmm. um, 
But I, I've got a little book on the cane toad, and in there is a letter by somebody written around the time. I can't remember when it was, 1950 or something like that? It was earlier. Uh, I think it was 1930. 1930s. And the, and the writer says, do not do this. It's a really bad idea. Mm. It's such a prophetic letter to read it now. Have you seen the movie about the cane toad? I've seen the original one, Cane Toads and Unnatural History. I haven't seen the, the more recent one. So do you have a kind of gut, grudging respect for these things? Oh, the, as far as the animal is concerned, it's a, it's a very nice animal, and um, uh, it's just unfortunate that um, the people who brought it here did almost no testing out or research on it. Blind Freddy could have actually predicted that it wasn't going to work. The the beetles that it were um, that it was brought over here to um, control uh, were both species that feed on the foliage of the sugar cane. Now that. Um, a metre or more uh, higher than the, the ground. So the cane toads can't climb, they can't fly, they can't jump particularly high. The two were never going to meet. So although the cane toad would happily eat the beetle if there was one dropped onto the ground in front of it, uh, most of the time it's never going to see them. Uh, so not only not effective at the intended job, but disastrous in, in its side effects. Yeah. Australia is interesting in that it has um, the world's worst and the world's best examples of biological mm. control mm. the worst being the cane toad uh, and the best being the um, the little beetles that feed on salvinia the um, uh, water plant and the other one um, uh, way back in the uh, the early stage brings us back to the prickly pear again the cactoblastus moth um, and that uh, probably the um, the listeners of, of today couldn't imagine um, the vast areas of um, the western slopes that were just covered in, in prickly pear and of course the cattle and the sheep couldn't get in there to graze all this country prime grazing country was getting covered up by this uh, plant that you chop it to bits and every little bit grows and it was almost impossible to, to get rid of um, so they they did some research they did it very well and they uh, got a number of candidates of um, insects that were going to uh, feed on the prickly pear, and one of them was this uh, moth. They brought in uh, the moth, uh, set it loose, and uh, it was brilliant. Uh, and so prickly pear now is, is sort of just a bit of a nuisance, but it was um, really a major economic threat. And also, many of us will have seen the images of rabbits, mm -hmm. and so also the Khaleesi and the myxomatosis have been very effective, although not completely, mm. uh, in... Hey, so Martin, are you willing to hang on for a bit? Because I'm going to play yep. a little song, and uh, I'd like to talk about bees when I come back. Can you hang, stay with us? Yep. Okay, this is uh, for the lovers of Monty Python. We'll recognise this. No, Jake the Peg. That was Eric the Half a Bee for Monty Python fans here on Community Radio 2 X. My name is Rod, and guest today is Martin Robinson from the Australian Museum. We're talking bugs, slugs, frogs, cane toads, and now let's talk about bees, because uh, we just had uh, our friends from Monty Python there singing the Eric the Half a Bee song. Uh, now, in the news lately, Martin, we've had the Asian honeybee hitting our northern shores. What's the story there? Well, it's um, the, the bee that most people know of in Australia when they, they think of a bee and go out in the, the garden and see bees are in fact um, an introduced species of bee. It's not native, it's the European honeybee. 
and that's the um, black and orange banded um, uh, insect that they see visiting all the flowers. Now that's in the genus Apis, and uh, the species name is Mellifera um, sweetness, uh, is what that means. And um, the Asian honeybee is in the same genus, so that's Apis serrana. Now the uh, problem uh, that could result is that uh, Apis serrana can, if it's uh, coming in from overseas, can uh, have some of these uh, little parasitic mites uh, called Baroa mites, which um, uh, are uh, parasitic on the, the uh, genus Apis, and they could transfer from one to the other. Now, if that's the case, um, as we were mentioning before, a lot of our um, uh, uh, crops and things like that are actually uh, pollinated by honeybees. So if the honeybee population suddenly crashes, then we could have a, um, a major problem with our food resources. The other thing is that the um, uh, Asian honeybee may have an effect on the ecology, but um, in, if that's the case, then uh, we don't really know what it'll be like. Uh, uh, in my opinion, it'll probably be very similar to uh, the effect that's already been um, uh, had by the introduced honeybee. Yeah, it's, it's very depressing once you notice invaders. Like, I've become aware of uh, plant invaders, and there's a serrated tussock and the... Oh, the Scotch thistle and the Patterson's curse and so on. There seems to be no end of things we're bringing to our shore to mess up the uh, ecology. Mm -hmm. uh, what's the story with co colony collapse disorder? Do we know much more about what's causing that? Well, there are um, a number of theories um, around the world as far as that, uh, and it, it might be a different um, a problem in, in different places. The Baroa mite is certainly um, one of the things that's caused a number of um, the honeybee colonies to die out overseas. And it's uh, a um, parasite that we don't have in Australia, uh, so hopefully we, we won't get it. Um, the other ones are things like pesticides and um, uh, diseases have been suggested for the colony collapses uh, elsewhere. But I don't know whether they've actually come up with a 100% um, same case um, uh, answer for um, all of the, the places around the world. Because they're disappearing, uh, the honeybees seem to be in trouble almost everywhere overseas. But um, uh, interestingly enough, not quite so badly in Australia. Mm, that's good. I, I believe actually it's a multifaceted thing. So I've heard that uh, in some countries they make the poor little bees work so hard that they put them out onto a cropland and they do their work and then they pick up the hives and they move them somewhere else and plonk them down and make them work there as well. Mm -hmm. Well, that's certainly... Uh, the life of a bee is, is literally working until you wear out. Um, and uh, probably most of your listeners would have seen a, a, a honeybee walking along the ground uh, at one stage that's uh, having a great deal of difficulty in flying and if you have a look at it you'll usually find that the wings are, are frayed <coughs> to the point where they no longer support its, its weight in the air. Um, uh, once an insect has got wings that it's fully grown and from then on it's just literally a case of it wearing out. Any uh, tissues that it damages or, or loses it won't replace. So once the, the wings are frayed to the extent that they um, uh, can't support it, they're not going to repair. That's the end of the bee. Mm -hmm. I think those brave little workers going out there and doing their dance and everything when they come back to tell their friends where to go. 
Well, uh, Martin, uh, it's been a, a great pleasure talking to you, and uh, I think um, thank you very much for your time today. That's okay. And we will see your response in the Times 2 supplement in the Canberra Times tomorrow. And by the way, the photo, if they use it, is not of the uh, the invading variety. It's uh, which one did you say you thought it was? The one. Uh, the the common shining uh, cockroach, which is a, a native wingless species, which seems to like um, wood mulch. Uh, so it, uh, it actually has been transported around the country in um, uh, garden mulches and things like that. But um, uh, if they're local to the area and you put in all the, the mulch on your garden, then the numbers will probably increase anyway. Ah, uh, yes. All right, well, the much maligned insect, and uh, here's, here's a vote for them. And uh, thank you very much for your time today, Martin Robinson. Now I'm going to play you a little track, and this one is that I picked up an interview with Dr Leif Hanlon from the National ICT Research Labs called NICTA here in Canberra. And you know that game, oh, Martin, have you seen this in the uh, games parlour, the uh, the little soccer players uh, on the rods and you flick the ball around with your hands? Yep. Well, uh, in this particular research lab that I went to, they had one of those set up and they had a computer operating the red players and the human plays the blues. So uh, here is myself with Dr Leif Hanlon at uh, NICTA the other day. Excellent. Okay, so I'm standing in the research lab in the, one of the back rooms at NICTA and in front of me is one of those soccer game things, you know, with little men on the rods and you twist the rods and you knock the soccer ball around and try to play this game of soccer. And attached to all the red players are these long shafts, these runner things, all these cables and stuff hanging, little bits of electronics all over the place. And I'm talking to Leif Hannon from NICTA. G'day, Neef. Uh, Leif. Good to, good to talk with you. What have we got here on the table in front of us? So what we have is a robot foosball game. What we do is we bring in third and fourth year undergraduate engineer students and what they're trying to do is to build an automatic game that can play foosball against a human. So half of the robot, half of the players, the red guys, are hooked up to robot controlled motors and actuators that makes them slide and turn. We have a camera at the top that can detect the ball and the blue players for the human and the red players for the computer. And down the bottom we've got a computer that's actually running all the strategy for the game so it can turn the, the players and it can play against the human. And what we do each year, we bring in some students and each year they make it a bit better. So these tracks things, uh, they're operating the red players and monitoring the whole thing as the camera, as you said, feeding into this. It looks like just a standard high-end PC down the bottom. That's right. So all these signals are, are, are going to this major crunching of numbers and things going on in the PC down there. Well, tell me a bit more about that. So the PC itself is actually one that we've customised. We've got some graphics control cards. So the, they're called GPUs, graphic programming units. And the reason why we use them is partly because they can understand what the camera is looking at, because they're graphics, but also because they're very good at parallel computations, which means we can get the students to write pieces of code and then run it all in parallel so the computer can be working out what to do whilst the camera's watching, whilst it's understanding where the ball is, and all of that is running fast enough to play people. Ah, and, and is it any good? Can I beat it? You could beat it right now. So right now it's in its second year. So the first year the students had to get the camera to see the ball and get the players to actually turn without flying around and around really fast. So that was the first job, make the control work. This year they're starting to get some strategy where they can make the ball move appropriately, and maybe next year we'll, we'll have it reasonably competitive.
So basically it's a fairly nicely controlled little environment. So the ball's in this restricted play zone, little arena thing, and the cameras and the electronics are tracking where the ball is going. Uh, Does it ever fail? Well, it it can do. So one of the big problems is if the ball gets stuck beside one of the players. So it's difficult for the, the robot to deal with that. And obviously sometimes the ball moves a little bit out of the way, but we've got an official uh, foosball table, so it's, if you look at the side of it, it's, it's nicely sloped and so forth, so it's very difficult for the ball to get out of play. And that's part of the, the reason why we work it. We're trying to build this so that undergraduate students can come and test out the computer vision and the control programming and then consider whether they want to go into a research career. So in, in general, this is something that humans are naturally good at, but a computer is finds it more challenging in other ways. What are the major challenges for a computer? So part of the challenge for the computer is that it has no concept of soccer. There's no concept at all of what it means to kick a ball and what it means to play the game. Whereas we naturally, if you throw a ball at someone, they will naturally try to catch it. And that natural reaction is something you have to build into the computer, watching where the ball is and what to do with it. Uh, and no good at strategy as well. Exactly. So typical strategy for a computer is to look at every option and to try out stuff, whereas that's just not going to work fast enough. And, and of course, I can't help warning, does the computer enjoy the game? <laughs> <laughs> we don't ask. <laughs> All right, that's a cool little device, so thank you. Thank you very much. Yes, and that was lots of fun. Thank you very much, Leif Hannon, for your uh, time at the NICTA the other day. And there's some other stories, too, that I picked up while at NICTA. So uh, here's one for you. Have you uh, come home from a day at work and uh, you want to plug in your mobile phone, but your home is not in reach of the uh, mobile phone network? Or maybe you live on a farm or in a big building somewhere and you can't get to... A, uh, a mobile phone network well at Nicta they're producing or working on this project called Femtocells and so here I'm interviewing Dr Mark Reed, and he's telling us about what Femtocells are okay and you are Mark Reed from Nicta and what are you working on I'm working on a, a new technology called Femtocells or small cell wireless communications and what's a femtocell? Femto means small, I think, femto doesn't it? Femto means very small, yes. And uh, basically it's a, a wireless access point, but instead of being um, under the normal Wi-Fi standard that's used on laptops today for wireless access, this is for your mobile phone. So it's a way of your mobile phone connecting into the internet. And this will become more important uh, as the data rates increase and more people using um, iPads or Android devices that have a lot of data requirements and the access point or the femto cell is much closer to the user, therefore allowing enabling much higher data rates to achieve the, the needs of the system. Oh, so does this mean that, like, I'm, I'm at work and then I come home and I automatically connect to this femto cell and I'm off the, the main network and then just going through my own hub? Is that kind of what yeah, you're yeah, talking about? Yeah, so another, another term for this is what they call fixed mobile Convergence. So your mobile phone can be used in your home environment, but on rates that are equivalent to your home phone today. So effectively, yes, it, it overcomes a need for a home phone. And uh, you can use your mobile device everywhere, whether you're mobile or whether you're at home. When you're at home, the, the, the rates of using that are much cheaper than uh, as you'd normally connect into the outside so network. So we get a higher data rate? Yes, certainly. So you're connecting over a shorter distance and um, you can get much higher data rates because you're effectively offloading from the outdoor network onto your own 
uh, little personal cell, if you like. So this is basically like a souped-up version of the wireless router hub that most of us have at home to connect to the internet. Right, correct, but it's using the 3G technology or the managed service that comes from operators like Telstra or Optus rather than uh, the so-called unlicensed bands that are used for wireless today. And, and does it manage, uh, like, am I going to come home and I'm going to connect to Fred's house next door or uh, is he going to connect to my house, my, my fit cell? Right, so there's issues around what they call uh, uh, where you're connected and so there's mechanisms to prevent that so you... You can have a closed group um, where you have to register your phone number on a website, and that means that only your your femtocell cell can be connected to your family, essentially. And are you doing this with a commercial application in mind? Yeah, so we've got a couple of angles on this. Um, firstly, we've actually built a femtocell cell and demonstrated this uh, in the lab connected to uh, independent test gear, and that intellectual property we've developed is something that we're looking to, to sell or to... Yeah, to commercialise, uh, and in addition to that, we're looking at um, the system modelling aspects of how this operates uh, in a large system, and and what the effects of these little small cells will be on the entire network, because it's essentially a very big transformation of how the network appears and how it operates. And this probably goes right to the core of what Nikta's business model is. I mean, tell us quickly what uh, Nikta does in and how it relates to what you're doing here. Yes, yeah, so certainly one of the areas that Nikta works on uh, is communications, and this area is particularly related to that because of the, uh, um, you know, it's an it's an application that uh, of infrastructure that enables uh, more efficient communications. I mean, of course, this this technology is also enabled by things like the NBN, which provide the backhaul, the high data rates you need into your home or your office to to provide these large rates. So this is a really classic, great application of the NBN, for example. So is Nikta particularly interested in commercialisation of technology? Yeah, we try to bridge the gap from solid research into commercialisation, and this this particular work we've been doing here has some uh, deep research behind it that um, differentiates it from other products on the market. And so once you've got it going and you've got some intellectual property that obviously has some capital value, what do you do with it then? Well, we talk to uh, partners or commercial companies about how they could license that technology to take it into their products. Um, for example, this technology I've just been explaining has recently been not our technology, but a competing technology is being commercialised by another very large chip, chip vendor in the US, Texas Instruments. So um, that differentiation that we've developed first, we were world first with this, has been introduced into their products, which indicates the, the value that this, this multi-billion dollar uh, worldwide company recognises in this particular technology. Ah, so what's the main engineering challenge you had in doing this? Uh, there's a lot of different challenges. Of course, taking, taking solid research and putting it into practice is, is a big challenge on its own because... Um, you know, a lot of research is done uh, with a lot of uh, assumptions around it, and some of those assumptions don't translate to the real world. We made sure that the um, the technology we used for this particular example could translate into a real world uh, application. So, making it run um, in a real world environment is something that's um, not to be underestimated. <laughs> uh, all right, well, Dr. Mark Reed, thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. Dr. Mark Reith there from Nicta Research Labs. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic. Um.